0: You are listening to the Small Laker Hunting Podcast, the hunting podcast that is free of advertisements, bought and paid for opinions, and minutes and minutes of sponsorships. If that's what you want, there's a plethora of other podcasts out there. Here, we're going to talk openly, we're going to talk honestly, and we're going to live in the real world, free of sponsorships and paid for advertisements and opinions that are governed and dictated by them that sounds interesting stay tuned for this episode of the small grounding like podcast hey hey welcome to this episode of the small grounding like podcast long time no chat I apologize um, life has been awesome though man I tell you what I've shared some on social media many of you guys have known. I'm really I think I'm I'm starting to hit a groove with this whole father thing um, it's amazing. When you just offer kind of the whole thing up to your creator, um, the piece that he kind of gives you and like, you know what, it's not a big deal that I don't get to go to the property as much as I used to. It's not a big deal that I don't get to think and produce and do things. Um, and you know what, I could make time, but you know what, there's time for family, there's time for other aspects and that, but I am excited to be back in my makeshift studio, Um, still have not finished the basement, still do not have my studio put together, but someday I will. And when I do, I will start doing videos along with the podcast. So the podcast will be more of a live aspect. Those of you who um, utilize YouTube a lot and would like to see some diagrams included in the podcast, this would be a great one actually for me to already be doing that because we're going to be discussing something that requires a visual pyramid to be drawn out for you. I'm going to do my best. In this podcast to discuss it. But as you can see from the title, we're going to be discussing, and this is actually layered out as this is part one or the overview. So it's going to be like a six part series in podcast wise because the pyramid itself is made up of five parts. And this is a pyramid to the perfect property. So this is going to be discussing, this series is going to be discussing things or the items that I believe. I have seen in some of the most successful whitetail properties that I've ever walked, heard of, talked to people about, or hunted and designed myself. These properties have these aspects to them. It is not an accident. Well, I shouldn't say that. There's been a few that some of these things are accidentally occur. But these are things that oftentimes you have to put forth effort to create. And it will pay off immensely with the potential of the property. And these five things are something that I understand some of you are not going to be able to control in your situations. You might hunt properties by permission. You can't do a lot of these things. But these are things that you can look for when you're trying to write, knock on doors, gain access to um, properties out there. These are the things that you need to try to look for. And especially towards the bottom of the pyramid. The funny thing is, you're going to notice, at the very top of the pyramid, I almost didn't even put it on here, and when we get to it, I'm going to discuss something else that might arguably be better off up there, but I left it off, and we're going to touch on that in this episode of the podcast, or the, the, the series, if you will, in uh, part one, the overview, but let's start delving into this and start breaking down um, just an overview of what are the five aspects of this property, uh, this perfect property pyramid, as I'm going to call it, and what is the one thing that we have to um, discuss that didn't get put on the pyramid, and there's a reason for that, but it really, arguably some people should say it should be in there, and I get that. So, first and foremost, if... Oh, weighing expectations—that's what I was going to discuss. I have this wonderful outline in front of me, and I don't ever follow it. Um, for those of you listening that don't have control over things and itemize things, or you maybe you have multiple different properties, I believe the more you have at the base of this pyramid on your properties, the more aspects. You know, it's it's one thing to have the tippy top, which we'll discuss what that is here in a second, but if that's all you have. I would treat that property as a recreational type piece, a take pressure off of your good property uh, piece, not necessarily invest a ton of money and energy and effort into that piece because the expectations of success towards, especially if you're like me, where everything is dictated by pursuing the top 10, 15% of the bucks in the area of that property. I'm after mature bucks. I'm after bucks that I want to use my tag on. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, So if you're not necessarily that type of person, if you're more of a freezer filler, I guarantee you, you design a property to have all these things, you're going to have a better chance at killing deer. However, that's not necessarily where this discussion is heading, so don't be offended when I go there and discuss mature buck tendencies and why all these things play a factor. But weigh your expectations of a property based off of how many of these ingredients you have. And if you don't have the two foundational pieces, me personally... That's a piece of property that I'm going to use to hunt, hunt with the purpose of getting out. I have the availability. I'm not going to hunt and put pressure on a better property. I'm going to look at filling a freezer on these properties. I'm going to look at the occasional, you know, hope a deer that I want to shoot comes through. Not necessarily going to expect a deer that I want to shoot to come through. I'm going to... my expectations for a specific property are governed by this, if you will. Um, I've never actually kind of laid it out and fleshed it out, but this whole concept came to be because this is one of the most discussed, asked, um, Questions that are posed to me via email or on messenger or people that know me, they want to know what am I looking for in a property tie? What do I want to design when I'm out walking pieces with people? This is what they always, our conversations always gear back to what are we trying to build? What do we want this property to have? So let's discuss that right now. Now I'm going to discuss first the thing that is the sixth thing. I have personally not had to include this in any property discussion to where I had to put it in. It is something that can be put in. It can be beneficial to be put in. I've designed property plans even just this year that included the potential inclusion of this aspect or this property, uh, this habitat feature. But it's not something that I feel it is something that is overblown. I feel it's something that a lot of people are blowing out of proportion, the necessity and the importance of it. Now, if you're going to do it, there are aspects and things that you need to consider in doing so. But the one thing that I left off of the pyramid of, the, the pyramid of perfect property um, is water. A water source. And a lot of this has to do with a lot of the water intake can be taken in through plants. You have dew in the morning that's going to be on everything. And typically speaking, the, the, the range of whitetail deer at the nighttime period oftentimes will be one of their primary sources of water. Um, but also there's usually some aspect of water, whether that be standing pools, creeks, ponds, some feature, typically speaking, that is a provision providing them water. Now, I will say, if your property truly—if your property doesn't have water, that's one thing. Now, you have to remember, we're discussing more so geared conversations to the small acre type properties. So, I'm not necessarily concerned if my property does not have water on it. I'm more concerned if the greater area does not have water anywhere. You know, if my property borders a 40 acre piece that has a pond on it or a creek on it um, or there's a river really close to me, I'm not necessarily going to be worried about wasting my time, energy, resources, and money putting in water at first. I might eventually get there. My initial plan may include where I think I might like or where the deer might like to have a water source. But I'm not going to waste a ton of time and energy and effort on that. And a lot of people think they got to have this watering hole, they got to have this, you know, whatever it might be. Uh, you don't have to, I just, I don't, I think it's overblown. Um, they can be very powerful communication sources, communication hubs, similar to a micro food plot, similar to a feature that you might install, um, in the property and habitat design, it can become that type of a thing for you. So putting in, you know, burying a, a, a 20, 50, hundred gallon, um, tub, if you will, and making sure you can get water to it that's the other key a lot oftentimes some of the places that need the water the most there's not a um, good way of refilling and ensuring that there's water in there or a natural feeling way of doing it um, To so just to go down this avenue if you will for just a little bit I don't want to waste too much time on this but like if you have a property that is completely void of water in and around the greater area of the property, and that's one of the reasons, in your opinion, that there's a limited number of deer utilizing the place is because they, they can't hydrate, can you provide a water source that one is in a good location, preferably between, um, you know, I like my I would like my watering sources to be outside of bedding areas, but... In the initial areas that a lot of people will call staging areas, um, the edge of bedding, not nece- and but yet still in broken cover at most um, areas of transition, um, those are great areas to put it because if I'm going to have to be lugging water in there or setting up some capacity for it, sometimes. Uh, I know a lot of guys, some of the most successful ways is they won't actually drive up to the watering hole, but they'll have a hose running from something else to something else, and they'll actually pump water in there. Or if you have a good setup for a hillside or whatever, you know, I believe it or not, I know people that run, you know, maybe 200 yards worth of hose down a hillside, and they've got a massive 500-gallon tub um, you know, they'll clean it out. They might buy it from an industrial commercial uh, company that buys whatever liquid in those massive containers. And then they'll use those and they'll fill it up with either rainwater. They'll come in and fill it up once a year and then they'll just let gravity feed it. And they might rig up some fancy, uh, bubble system to where it shuts off the hose, or they might just go out there, open the spigot when they know they need to let it run for a while, close it back up. I've heard people get as fancy as they want. You know, I've had uh, people have be very successful. We've all seen, you know, if you research watering holes enough, you know, there's guys that'll, that have been very successful with 20 and 25 gallon tub is just buried in the water. And, you know, I have a property where if I wanted to, I have access to water about probably 100, 200 yards away from a spot that I could put a tub in and I could run water to if I really wanted to um now winter freeze and things of that nature is something that i have to be cognizant of but it's something that if i really wanted to i could other people there's good spots where ease of access and entry they can get in and out really quick and easy without disturbing much of the property they do it quietly and they really only have to worry about filling it during the very very driest parts of the years and there's a way to design watering holes to where they're kind of the retention area of the area, and you can actually slope the ground in the greater area around them to them to help hold water in that year round. So, but we are going to operate like the majority of properties out there that water is not this massive must have type thing. The other aspects of the perfect property pyramid, however, are five things that every property that I've had success on and that I feel are optimized for deer hunting and for the hunter to be successful harvesting the top 10 to 15% of the deer is the following. At the very top, which is the least important, the base is not affected. This is the tippy top, the cherry on top, and that is food. It's amazing how many people this is something that they try to shove down onto the base or the foundation of a pyramid, and that is ignorant. That is an ignorant way of thinking. There is so much food that Mother Nature provides to the deer. Yes, you can have a higher deer deer density in lush, um, food dense areas than you can say uh, you know like up in the the UP of Michigan. Or the upper extremes of Minnesota into the boundary waters. There's a reason why there's a limited number of deer herd, uh, deer density. It's because there's not the lush, ample amount of food that can be found in the Midwest fields of agricultural, um, even in the East and West Coast to an extent. I mean, but food is not something that is so void that they can't get by. And sometimes, where food is limited, the introduction food goes a lot longer way until the deer all figure it out. And then you're trying to support a artificially intensified and and higher deer density number than um, some could say would have existed if you didn't exist. You know, I think of Grant Woods and what he's done in the mountains where he's at and where the soils are terrible and there just usually isn't that high of a deer density, but he's provided so much good food that they have to continue to provide more and more because, man, they're just increasing the deer the deer are consolidating on his property and his greater area more than they ever did before, which is, I mean, it's a good thing. I don't think it's a bad thing, at least. But food, it's the top of this pyramid. It is not something that I worry about first and foremost on a property. As we move down right beneath food, to me, I call it the layers and the zones. I don't want my property to be such a monocultural aspect. You know, I don't want um, only one type of bedding if I can help it. I may have one bedding sanctuary that's you know five, eight, ten acres, twenty acres, depending on the size of the property, but I'm going to try to segment that into two different styles. I'm going to layer that bedding. Maybe I do quadrants. Maybe I do sections. Maybe I do a more of a, a more dense hinge cut type setting, to where than another spot I do more of a clear cut forest regeneration setting. Maybe I do a switchgrass planting. Maybe I do a fallow field encouragement regenerated, or a regenerative field into bedding, where I just let Mother Nature, pro, you know, reclaim a, a section. Whatever it might be, saying, you know that was mainly bedding examples, but it could be food. I don't necessarily want all my food in one specific pro- space, especially on a small property. I want to have a couple different pockets of options to where I might be able to have two small dough groups utilize my property on a semi-regular basis without that quarreling and fighting. Because let's be honest, if, if you can't have a couple different dough groups or a couple different bucks utilize your property when when... You know They get a little iffy with each other, but not necessarily full-blown rut. Um, once full-blown rut happens, I just want a property that is very conducive to daytime movement, and we're going to get into that with the three biggest aspects of the property. But layers and zones is, is, is the next thing, and I, and I can't wait to unpack that and kind of go into it deeper, reiterate some of the things I just said. The next layer, so we're on the third layer down, is limited and designed pressure. Every single property that I've designed or every single property I've seen success, this is a large factor. Um, This is one of the quickest and easiest things to do one side of this coin, and that is the limited pressure. So if you originally had five, six uh, people hunting a place and you cut that in half, it's hard to see a property not seeing an increased in usage and activity. Now there are some things that you can very quickly override those aspects of it, but limiting the pressure on a property is going to, to, to pay dividends in a big way. Designing the pressure that is allocated, because every single time we hunt is to some degree, whether it be nominal or even barely measurable or very intrusive in nature, there is pressure. So designing when and where and how and on what conditions that can all be done without being detrimental to the property and the flow and the travel and the usage of the deer is massive so limited and designed pressure is the third thing now we're down onto the bottom foundational two pieces these are in my opinion the two greatest things that you can have and i'm going to touch on one that is arguably a little less important than the other but that is entrance and exit you can have the best food the best layer layers and zones the best or the least amount of pressure both in limited nature and design and it can all be overridden by terrible entrance and exits this is one of the easiest ways, and I think it's one of the most prevalent ways that people destroy their properties, and that is entrance and exits. If you don't have a good entrance and a good exit, it's not worth hunting a location. Um, I would rather have one stand location on a 100-acre property than 10 if nine of them are terrible. And the most crucial thing that every single one of these properties that I've been on or designed or have hunted and still do, the reason for their success And their sustained success, probably more than anything, is the security. That property is a security and sanctuary for the deer. It encourages daytime movement. They're typically never far away unless they're in a designated um, large food source. On my property, I don't even have a large destination food source. Any of my property, the deer are never more than one or two leaps from cover. It encourages daytime movement. It makes it easy for them to move in the day and feel safe. Security is the number one thing before all else that make a property successful. You know, it's funny, and I'll end on this little note, but the other day I was on a Facebook forum or a Facebook page or whatever you want to call it, and there was a posed question. And the question was, hey, what's your favorite um, type of food plot And they were talking about a harvest plot or kill plot as they went on. Um, What is your favorite type? And, you know, instantly you had people regurgitating and vomiting different seed brands and use this brand and this bland. ah, Idiots. Cannot stand it. My answer was, I want a plot that's located in, in a spot that I can enter and exit with foolproof design. Very little chance of them to detect or have to cross my trail. I'd really like to have a west, you know, I enter from the west and I have east winds. And it is a micro-style winding food plot where they feel safe and they are at least one bound, maybe two away from cover, right outside of a bedding area in a transitional area. What is in that plot does not matter to me. You want to put clover in it? Great. I got beans in it, great. I got just rye in it, great. I got buckwheat. I don't care. Whatever, if, if the deer will eat it and they feel safe, it's near bedding, it's in a transitional area, but the deer got to feel safe before all else. I mean, I, I'm at like number four, five, and six. Maybe then at seven, I got food as, as, as or what seed type I pick. But everybody wants to go to that because you know what? They're fed a lie by the industry. They're fed a lie that that's going to make a difference. Um, you know, I don't care how good a soil quality is in that soil. I don't care if you've no-tilled it or tilled it or lightly disted it or weed, you know, mow, sow and mow, or, or if you've got 100 uh, ground, uh, 100 earthworms per square foot or you got one, I don't care. I could care less. If I'm looking to hunt that plot and I want it to be successful, it's going to have security above all else. I'm going to have a foolproof entrance and exit. It's going to have a very limited and designed pressure-oriented attack plan with it. I'm not going to be checking trail cameras on it at all during the hunting season. It's going to be in a zone right outside of bedding areas, and what's in it doesn't matter nearly as much as all those other things. So it's just an example of unpacking it. I look forward to going through... Over the next five podcasts, we're going to touch on each one of these. Because each one then can be broken down into subcategories. And I look forward to discussing that with you guys. Um, I want to thank the dozens of people that kind of prompted this discussion. Nobody specifically can I thank by name or anything like that. But just every email that I've gotten over the years, especially in the last few months, as well as a few consultations that I went on or did for people, this is this this is the most needed conversation, it seems, and it doesn't matter how many times somebody says certain things or how many times people talk about entrance and exits, it can never be stressed enough. So I'll happily unpack this before again. And a lot of this is not going to be new. A lot of this is not going to be things that I have not said before, but there's always new people coming and there's always um value in revisiting these things to maybe reflect upon are we actually instituting The things that we know we should, but we don't necessarily actually do them. You know, I liken it to the walk of a Christian. I know what I should do every single day, but that man in the mirror that stares back at me in the morning and in the evening, man, he fails every single day. And it's no different. You know, we know entrance and exits are so important and pivotal, but yet we overlook possibly overhauling a location, possibly going the extra mile to change a a, a, a spot where we know we need to hunt here but there's no trees and we're a tree stand hunter so maybe we need to sacrifice and put up a blind but we don't want to because that's just not us but we need to adapt we need to be better we need to be better hunters and that's what this kind of five part series six, including this uh, overview podcast is going to tackle. So I thank you for, for joining in, checking in. This is a shorter than normal podcast. We're not even going to hit 30 minutes and I'm going to hopefully keep the next discussions each part kind of shorter as well. So this is going to be a pinpoint conversation about each one of these five things from food to layers and zones to limited and design pressure, entrance and exits and security. Um, Those are the five things that I think make up the perfect property with remember the caveat that water is not included water would be included if it was a true limiting factor it just has not been that the vast majority of properties that i've walked discussed toured um, or designed and hunted myself so this is ty god bless and good luck out there